There's a show called Undercover Boss. I haven't watched a whole episode, but I watched a clip because the premise is pretty cool. Apparently, they take a TV crew, they set the whole thing up, but then a boss, a man or a woman, goes undercover. They put on this disguise, and then they go down. They get on the floor with the people, with the minions, you know, with the, with the, with the other people, brushing shoulders. And apparently, as they go through the script of the show, uh, it's, it's pretty powerful that the boss actually gets to know the people that are working again for him or for her. They, they get to know just um, what their lives are really like, just the struggles that they're going through, but also how gifted, how talented, how competent so many of the, uh, and I'll just say it kind of in a derogatory way, the underlings, you know, are. And then by the end of the show, of course, it's revealed, actually, this new coworker has been your boss all the time. But the whole experience, the whole culture of the organization has changed because because the boss has come into relationship with the people. Today, we're going to have to read a text that is going to affirm for us that our God already went undercover for us. Our God had actually always been longing to be back in that relationship with the co-workers, so to speak. But it's all kind of a cattywampus here in our story because our boss actually came down to be with the workers and the workers, like the show, they, they had no idea. But the big reveal is about to happen. Just how great, just how glorious, just how amazing, just how incredible your boss really is. In fact, your boss, you've, you've been brushing up, you've been getting close to, you've had these hints of just how great, how glorious, how amazing your boss is. But until now, until this moment we're about to read, it's, it's kind of like, but you had no, I mean, you really, you had no idea. You couldn't have had any idea until the boss decided to truly reveal himself to you. It's called the transfiguration. And Jesus has been pointing his people towards this for some time. At the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, we might recall uh, when John, uh, his cousin, just declares, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Oh my, there's, there's something about this person who's it's quite special. Then in Jesus' baptism, we see God in three persons reflected, Jesus in the water, uh, the voice of the Father, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, the Spirit descending and landing and staying upon Jesus Christ. In the ministry of Jesus, we've been getting these hints of just how amazing he truly is. He, he touches the sick and they become well. He, he speaks and the blind can see. Uh, he, he's made declarations about himself, of course. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. I am the shepherd. I am the gate. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. What kind of a boss says these things about himself? And as we're about to read, it's going to start six days later. Well, the six days before is an interaction that the boss, Jesus, has with his disciples. And they're walking along a path or along a road. And he says, what's the word on the street, guys? What are they saying about me? And they're having a conversation. And then he lofts, he puts out the question, what do you say of me at this point in this journey that we're on together, in this relationship that we're building 
And Peter makes the declaration, we now believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Again, Peter kind of gets the test question right, but he has no idea what he's about to encounter. Let me read the encounter for you. Matthew chapter 17, we're going to read nine verses. This is the word of God for us here today. It's going to be a good one. It's always a good one. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face ground to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Amen. Transfiguration Sunday. If you've never heard of it before, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a really big deal. And we need to make it a big deal for all the church. Other facets of the church, other expressions of, of faith have held on to it. And this is actually a feast day. And thanks to Danny's family, to Sarah and Dara and Lara, we have a feast after the worship service today because they get it. You can't celebrate Transfiguration Sunday without having a festival, without celebration, without a feast. This is the final Sunday of the season of Epiphany. What's an epiphany? It's an epiphany. Aha, an, a, a revelation, a eureka moment. And this is a eureka, a revelation, an aha moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is going to set us up for our season of Lent that will take us into Easter. But today we get into, and I want to unpack for you, just what is transpiring in transfiguration. Now, I'm going to do so at first academically, but I hope by the end this will be far from just an academic exercise. You're literally about to get a three-point sermon, three points in a poem if you're lucky, but I'm hoping that it is far more than an exercise of intellect for us today, because the point is for us, our own transfiguration, our own transformation. But this revelation, this transfiguration of Jesus tells us something very powerfully about who he is, about why he came, and about what it means for us. Couldn't be more simple there, right? I hope we can stay with me here. It's just going to tell us very powerfully some things about who Jesus really is, about why he came, and what his ministry is up to, and of course, what that is going to mean for all of us. Who is he? This is showing us very powerfully the dual nature of Jesus Christ. Anybody know what the dual nature of Jesus is? There were councils about this, there's books about this, there's been arguments about this. The dual nature of Jesus is simply that we affirm the mystery revealed for us that somehow beyond the scope even of our finite minds to be able to fully ever wrap themselves around, Jesus is in fact fully God and fully 
human. Now, the disciples were down with the fully human part, but they're about to get a lesson in the yet still ever and always fully divine part. The story is structured around, and thanks to the commentaries for pointing this out to me, kind of a, a, a set of suddenly statements. There's suddenly that Jesus is going to shine light, like suddenly Moses and Elijah are going to appear. Suddenly a cloud is going to cover the mountain and the voice of the Father is going to be heard. So it's up to us then to keep up with this grand revelation that is unfolding. The first suddenly is his appearance. Suddenly he was changed. Suddenly his clothes were white, whiter than bleach, it would say in Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, in Mark's gospel. Um, suddenly his face shone like the sun. We are here seeing the sudden revelation of the divinity of Jesus. And it's almost like this. His divinity has been veiled in part by the humanity. But now, without losing the humanity, somehow getting a pre kind of a foretaste, a precursor, a glimpse to what is yet to come. We're seeing the resurrected, the renewed, the fully restored humanity of Jesus in this radiant light emanating from him. Then there's another suddenly. Suddenly, as the, kind of just as this is unfolding, two men appear, two figures appear. All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear. Now, when Moses and Elijah appear and the radiance begins to come around them, this is going to point us back to the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry. When Moses appears, if we look back to the ministry of Moses, we know that Moses was the one called to lead the people out of their captivity, their slavery in the land of Egypt. He was leading that exodus to the promised land. And during the course of that exodus, Moses was called to go up onto a mount. And that mount was covered with the cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory, if you want to impress your friends with some fancy church words there. The Shekinah glory covered the mountain. And there the law, the word of God, was given to Moses to give to the people. And let's not forget the many things that can be said about this giving of the law. The point of the law was in many ways to essentially restore the humanity of people because they were dehumanized during their time in captivity. They were less than, they were slaves. They had no freedoms, they had no voice, they had no rights. And God was in the process of restoring the dignity of being image bearers in them, giving them freedom, giving them life, bringing them into that promised land. And so Moses sort of points to that fulfillment of the promise of God bringing the people into the promises of blessing and abundance, a land flowing with milk and honey. Elisha then appears. Elisha is the great prophet, the great prophet who pointed the people to the coming restoration of all things. Now, Elisha also had his mountaintop moment. His mountaintop moment wasn't on Mount Sinai. His mountaintop moment was on Mount Carmel. And on that mountain, he went to fight against the forces of sin and evil as he did battle with the prophets of Baal. 
And now when we think about this, of the many things that could be said about this incident, this moment in the scriptures, let's not just think, oh, he's just fighting against some idolatry and some false worship. No, 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 no. This idolatry, this false worship wasn't just some benign little going off the course. This was a system of worship that enslaved women as temple prostitutes that led to results of that temple prostitution, that led to infanticide, that led to more child sacrifice. This is a wicked and evil, a depraved and awful dehumanizing moment in the life of the people of God. And once again, God then using his prophet, using Elijah, is bringing people out of that slavery, out of that captivity, into being more the people, the men and the women, the humanity that he wants for them. And so we see now, however, that Jesus is not just one in a line of people hearing the word of God, of people delivering the people into freedom. No, Jesus is the fulfillment because something that we see quite significant in this is that when Moses came down from the mountain after he heard the word of God and he shares the word of God, something else happened to him. That glory of God was reflected from him, but it was a fading glory. It was a passing glory. It was not emanating from Moses himself. Moses was more like the moon that reflects the light of the sun. But in Jesus now on this mount, we see that he is the source. He is the sun. He is the radiance of God. There is no more reflection necessary. You have the source of light and life. Do you get it, friends? Is it starting to make sense? What is being shown here is this powerful revealing of the dual nature of Jesus. For them, the disciples with Jesus, they were fully grasping in many ways, of course, the humanity of Jesus. He walked with them, he talked with them, he ate with them, he slept with them, he got rest with them. They saw the limitations of the humanity that he bore. But now they're beginning to see, oh, veiled in this flesh is yet the incarnate deity of Jesus Christ, the very Son of of God. And this begins to point us towards why then Jesus, the fully God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has taken on and continues to embody our humanity and flesh and blood. The third suddenly speaks to this. The first suddenly was that Jesus shone like the light. The second suddenly is that Moses and Elijah appear. These help us to understand who Jesus truly is. But then there's another suddenly. In the course of the narrative, what we recall is that once these two appear, this is where Peter speaks up. He recognizes, obviously, something extremely unique, something unprecedented, something powerful is unfolding before us. And he gets really excited about it. And well, he should. And he tosses out an idea. It's good for us to be here. <laughs> he gets it. He gets it. Should I build some tents, some tabernacles? some booths for you and for Moses and for Elijah. Now, we think that's silly, right? There's part of us that we hear that, we're like, oh, that's silly, Peter. Oh, you know, oh, Peter, what are you up to? It's not silly at all, actually. In the context of the people of God and what God was bringing the people through, what we know, of course, is that they were called to celebrate literally a festival of tents, of booths, of remembering the exodus that brought them out of Egypt and was bringing them into the promised land and when Moses was on that mountain, the people were to remember that time when they, their freedom from captivity, the 
bestowing of the law upon the people of God, and they were to do this at the harvest season, celebrating the abundance and the provision of God, and they were to go and they were to spend several days on the mountainside in a bunch of tents. And Peter is thinking to himself, oh, is, is this hearkening us back to this time when Moses was on the mountain, when Elijah was on the mountain, when God was doing a new thing, when change was about to happen, when promises were being fulfilled, am I living in the midst of this? The answer to that is yes. The answer to that is yes, you are living in the midst of this. But here's what Peter is going to get as his life and goes on, goes on. Jesus has already tabernacled. Jesus has already tented for us. Now, some of you already know what I'm talking about. But in the Gospel of John, remember, as John is reflecting back on the life of Jesus, he declares that Jesus is already the embodied God. God the Word became flesh and, your Bible might say, made his dwelling or made his tent or tabernacled among us. No, 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 Peter. You don't need to make a little REI tent set up over here on the mountainside anymore. God has already made the tabernacle and taking on the flesh of humanity over his divinity in the Son, Jesus Christ. And this is pointing us to why Jesus came. So why? This is what we can't forget. This is what we can't lose here. So why did divinity take on humanity? Was to make us a family with God again. And as simple as that sounds, let us never miss how profound the heart of God is to be a family with his image bearers, to be restored to the family of God. Jesus is to simply be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so what is being revealed here is that why Jesus came and took on her humanity was ultimately to restore us to the sinless state where we could be in relationship with, as that song so beautifully sang for us, that Revelation song, holy, 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 that we could be restored and right and renewed with a holy God once again. And so bringing us up to speed, because there's some more things to say, here we are now, standing on this mountain of transfiguration, seeing Jesus as he truly is, fully human and still fully divine. But from our vantage point, now as we are looking towards Easter, this is necessary for us to understand what is about to unfold in the ministry of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus and Peter and James and John, they stand here on this mountaintop, but 40 days from now, we're gonna be standing on another hilltop. Here we stand on this unnamed, unknown mountain where Jesus reveals his true divinity. But in 40 days, we're gonna stand on a mountain called Golgotha or Calvary, the place of the skull where Jesus will be crucified. Here we are seeing Jesus clothed in white, shining bright like the sun. In 40 days, we'll see Jesus stripped of his clothes in the most undignified state that a man could find himself nailed to a cross. Here we see light pouring out from the face of Jesus. In 40 days, we'll find blood pouring out from his hands, from his feet, from his side. 
and the crown of thorns on his head. Here we hear the voice of the Father speaking out, this is my son whom I love with him, I am well pleased, listen to him. And in 40 days we'll hear the son cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know because he's taking on the sins of the world. Here we see two great figures surrounding Jesus, Moses and Elijah, reflecting Jesus, the fulfillment of what God had been doing through this ministry of reconciliation and redemption all along. In 40 days, we'll see Jesus flanked by two thieves. One will curse him, but the other will confess him and find his own transfiguration. Here we see a cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory coming over this mountaintop. And in 40 days, a cloud of darkness will descend upon that hill as creation itself mourns the death of Jesus Christ. There on that hill, Peter will profess, it is good to be here. Just as he professed, Jesus, you are the Christ six days earlier. But in 40 days, we know that P Peter will deny Jesus and be found hiding in the shadows. Here on this mountain of transfiguration, we see the glory of God shining from Jesus' face, emanating from his clothing, surrounded by figures of our faith. The voice of the Father declaring, this is my son whom I love. But make no mistake, 40 days from now, when we're standing with Jesus on that hill, it's still the glory of God, amen? It's still the glory of God now doing the work that his humanity required, the work of paying the price for our sins, to take the death that we deserved, to set up for us the payment, the atoning sacrifice that would win for us freedom, life, salvation, glory forever. Amen, friends? That is why others have got the importance of this transfiguration moment. Not just what it means, but what it's pointing us to. Let me spend a few minutes here to close us out to just talk about what does this mean, of course, for us who call Jesus Savior and declare for him Lord. What this means for us, of course, is an invitation to our own transfiguration. Two weeks ago, I actually preached a passage that I love about transfiguration. They just translated the word, the same word metamorphosis there, uh, as transformation. We were invited, of course, to the transforming of our mind so that we might know the will of God. But here we see this transformation, but to distinguish the two, the writers like to call it this transfiguration, that change. But really, it's not a change in Jesus. We know it's a revelation of who Jesus really is. Again, it's that unveiling of what had been all along. But now we are invited to our own transfiguration, our own change. When Peter passed the test, whenever Jesus asked him, who do you say I am? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But that's kind of like the classroom test, you know, the written exam. Here, what we're seeing in Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, after Peter professes that I would surely die for you, Jesus Christ, we see that in his own fear, in his own humanity, his own weakness, 
he will deny Jesus. He'll deny Jesus three times. Later, we know that even after he sees the resurrected Jesus Christ, that he will still disqualify himself and he'll seek to go to return to a life of fishing. But Jesus, in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, restores Peter. And as I reflected upon this story this past week, and I wanted to kind of wrap my mind, my finite mind, around what this might mean for our own transfiguration, of course, this experience of Peter spoke powerfully to me to simply say, perhaps in my own life, many times, I've passed the written exam. I've known the right thing to say. I can say that the Bible is the word of God. I could recite to you the words of the Lord's Prayer by memory. I could recite to you the Apostles' Creed by memory. I could wow you with my understanding of systematic theology. I could try and make myself seem better than you by quoting for you Greek and Hebrew words. But just because I can pass the test, like Peter could pass the test of declaring who Jesus was, are many of us not living into the fullness of the exam, the fullness of truly devoting of our lives to Jesus Christ, the fullness of truly getting the transformation, the transfiguration that God wants for each and every one of us. You see, that is the invitation of Jesus Christ for us. I talk about it often. I mention it regularly. I don't want you to ever miss it, especially if I only ever had one Sunday to preach for you. I always kind of want to sneak it in there almost. It's always by our union with Jesus Christ. Remember that the life of faith, this life of being a Christian, it's not so much asking Jesus just to forgive us and getting just enough of Jesus in our lives that we can be forgiven and we can feel good about ourselves and we might be able to say, oh, and I'll go to heaven when I die. No, it's about giving our lives to Jesus Christ, putting our life into him. That is why over and over and over again, the scriptures tell us your life is in Jesus. Your hope is in Jesus. Your faith is in Jesus. Your righteousness is in Jesus. And whenever it says it's in Jesus, it's not just some flowery language. It's not just a metaphor. It is the new reality to which we are invited. No, you really are to be in Jesus. You really are to be in Jesus. You put your little life into his big life and there is your transformation. There is our transfiguration to become the people of God. I would call it deification, but that would be going too far. Let me explain that one. You know, deification is this thing that some people have a, 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 a kind of aspired towards to say, could humanity ever achieve the divinity? Could we ever actually become divine ourselves? We know that the revelation, the truth that has been real to us is no, no. <laughs> You've been trying that through religious efforts for centuries and centuries. You've been trying to be ethical enough, moral enough, good enough, religious enough, to pray enough, to sacrifice enough, to sing enough, to give enough, to do enough. And then finally, in Jesus Christ, God says for us, enough is enough. I'll do enough. I'll do the work for you. I'll fulfill the promise for you. And now it is not for you to, in a sense, achieve the divine, but to receive the divine, to receive the transfiguration, to receive the transformation, to receive your change by giving your life to Jesus Christ. And so now, 
It's the pastor's prayer that this would go simply from an academic exercise, an exposition on the history and the practice of Transfiguration Sunday, a three-part, a three, a three-point message on what this means, who Jesus is, and why he came, and what this means for us to drive the point home. And so I invite the band to come forward. And as the band comes forward, I'm going to ask you, if you're open to it, to move beyond the academic and into the experiential. To move, let's say, beyond the human, beyond the flesh, and into the spiritual. Bear with me one more moment while I tease this point out for you. I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of listening lately. Well, I always do because I'm a preacher and I get to have a study, which is really cool. So I get to read a bunch of stuff and you give me the privilege, the right to do that. And I am grateful for it. But been just reading a lot lately on the history of evangelicalism in the past hundred years, really the 20th century, moving to our current times. And one of the things that comes up is the profound impact of the social gospel movement in American Christianity. And I don't knock the social gospel movement. And if you don't know where this is all going, I'll, I'll take you out for coffee and we'll talk more, more about it. But they weren't, they weren't totally off the rockers in the social gospel movement. They said, we're moving into this modern world. It's hard for people to really understand and embrace the supernatural. Aren't we explaining away the things that we thought were magical and supernatural before? And the answer to a lot of that was yes. A lot of things that in the past were mysterious that were understood were becoming understood in our modern world. And so a group of people with a lot of them good intentions were like, let's just really emphasize the moral teachings of Jesus, the ethical teachings of Jesus, Jesus who was the teacher, Jesus who was the example, Jesus who was the inspirational leader. But what that did is it sucked out what so many of us now want so much more in this modern, rational, scientific world that we live in. It sucked out, it pulled out of faith, it pulled out of so many churches, that desire that we all have for the divinity of Jesus, for the supernatural experience, for the transformation that we all want. Because if I'm really honest with myself, I still want the transformation. I don't want it to all make sense. I don't wanna be able to wrap my finite mind around it because if I can wrap my finite mind around it, I've made it up and it's no longer greater and glorious and higher than me. I want the supernatural, I want the divine. I want my own transfiguration in Jesus Christ. And so my friends, I've been praying and I will continue to pray. Let's make the church, let's make this church, let's make connections a place where, yes, we embrace the humanity of Jesus Christ, our teacher, our leader, our example, our guide, but let us continue to embrace and worship the divine Jesus Christ who brings transfiguration. Amen, friends? It's happening around the world. We have a wonderful band of incredible people who come from Brazil. Brazil right now is experiencing revival in profound ways. Millions of people are coming to faith in Brazil. I'm glad that God brought some Brazilians to us so that maybe we can learn some things about the supernatural and about revival. Do you know that right now there's more Presbyterians worshiping in Korea than in Scotland, where Presbyterianism was invented, so to speak. Right now there's more Anglicans in Nigeria, right? 
than in all of the UK. Right now, America represents like something like, I think it's like 3% of Catholicism <laughs> in all the world. It's happening. It's happening in God's creation. It's happening in God's church. It's happening in places where people are saying, yes, we embrace Jesus Christ fully human, but oh, we are never going to let go of Jesus Christ fully divine. And we're gonna welcome and embrace and live into that divine. Amen, friends, amen, friends. Because I know you didn't come here for just more of the human. I know you came here for something divine. And so we're gonna worship God and I'm gonna pray every one of us, however we need to be transformed, however we need to be transfigured, that it might happen. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, a power beyond any man or woman here, come into this space, come into our lives, and change us, transform us, make us new again in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's worship friends. Thank you.